What's up, guys? Welcome back to the episode. What? 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 What's up, guys? Welcome back to the podcast. My name is Rami Webby. I am a resident physician, and today I am with my friend, Dr. Mike Natter, MD. He is uh, also a resident, soon to graduate. He is currently in New York City. He does some fantastic art. If you guys follow him at Mike Natter, you know what I'm talking about. And he is a huge proponent for educating people on diabetes, specifically type 1 diabetes. Uh, All around, very cool gentleman, very cool guy to talk to. We went in on some stuff that I think is very important, and Mike does as well. And it pertains to basically kind of, you know, medical education, being a resident, what it's like combining art and medicine, how we got into that, his journey with type 1 diabetes, and uh, just some cool tidbits about Mike. So I think you guys might find this episode kind of inspiring. I hope you do at least enjoy the episode, guys. Before we get into it, though, we will shout out our sponsors. Our first sponsor is Metalita at Metalita.com. I've talked about them pretty much on every episode because they are the shit. Metalita is a leader in medical apparel. They have spent years researching, developing, testing proprietary fabrics and technology that meets the standards for quality and craftsmanship. Why can't I say that word? Craftsmanship that you deserve. Their products have the highest possible rating in the industry. They've been tested for strength, soil release, fluid repellency. You could spill freaking coffee on the white coat and it slides right off. It's pretty fantastic. Metalita is committed to medical professionals. They are committed to creating the highest quality products available, and they are the leader for a reason. So guys, if you want some fantastic looking gear, go to metalita.com. You can get a fresh white coat, scrubs, scrub jackets, tees, basically anything that you'd need to wear to a hospital or clinic or whatever type of practice that you have where you're dealing with patients. Go to metalita.com. You won't regret it. This episode is also brought to you by Resolve Physician Agency. Resolve is on a mission to empower physicians like us in every facet of the transition from training to practice, providing the advice that we never got in training. Resolve uses salary data to ensure that physicians are armed with the same tools as the employers, meaning they routinely see increases in annual compensation for physicians. So if you're in the process of signing a contract or if you're going to be signing a contract soon, it's important you have someone on your side. So do yourself a favor, get your contract reviewed by the Resolve Physician Agency team at resolvephysicianagency.com. Their team reviews thousands of physician contracts annually and 90% of those contracts are substantially below the median. So guys, do yourself a favor, team up with resolvephysicianagency.com, get your contract reviewed and gain the leverage that you need. What's up, everybody? I am with Mike Natter, the legendary Mike Natter, I should say. Um, You guys may have seen his posts on Instagram. He posts art and medicine. And I got to say, Mike, your, your art is very powerful. And, you know, sometimes you can scroll through a couple pictures and you're like, you just, you get the whole story instantly. And I think that's why you've been able to connect with so many of us and why we all you know, really like your artwork, especially us residents that um, know what it's like to go through the process of being a medical student and being a resident. And your art is kind of like speaking what words can't really say for a lot of us. So uh, thank you for that. Thank you for your art. We all appreciate you. And uh, 
I'm glad I'm glad you took some time out of your day to join me today. Thanks, man. Thank you for having me. First off, and thank you so much for uh, for saying that. It means a lot. So, tell me where you're, uh, what you're doing now. Um, you're in residency, and you're uh, you're working hard. But how did you um, how did you get into drawing and art and all of that? And what's your what's your story? Sure, man. Um, do you want the long version? Because it, it's pretty long. Let's here, give us. Right? Let's get, Let's do the long version. Yeah. We're gonna get. We're gonna dive in. All right. So, um, I'm born and raised in New York City. And I grew up thinking that um, being a doctor was like being an astronaut. It was one of those things where you saw someone in their white coat in the subway and you'd be like, wow, like that is a really admirable, noble field. I would love to be that one day, but I know that I probably can't. Or like being the president of the United States, right? Like something that we all think as kids would be cool, but you never, you, you know, you realize you can't actually do that. Um, so that's kind of how I viewed medicine. I, I was really not a math and science kid. Um, in fact, I was quite bad at math and science and I was told that repeatedly by my teachers and my peers and it was okay. It wasn't like uh, you're dumb or anything, but it was like, uh, you, your strengths are in the humanities and the arts, um, no medicine in my family. And so I kind of just went about doing my, my humanities thing. Um, I went to undergrad, um, well, let me back up. So when I, when I was nine, I was diagnosed with type one diabetes. I went into really bad DKA, um, kind of in and out of a coma. I was in the hospital for some time. And, um, that was when I really kind of had this window into physiology in a very intimate way. Mm -hmm. And it really made me appreciate, um, like medical physiology and anatomy and just understanding what was going on. Um, and instead of being kind of afraid of it, I was really interested in it. Um, because you can imagine it's something that your body was doing automatically on its own unconsciously, kind of like this beautiful orchestra that was happening inside your body without you knowing about it. And then all of a sudden one day you wake up and you are now responsible for balancing that delicate homeostasis of blood sugar, which is an extremely difficult hour to hour thing. And, uh, you know, when I was diagnosed in the early nineties, this was old school and I had, you know, big syringes. I had a glucometer that was like a brick, you know, it took 60 seconds to count mm -hmm. down, big sample of blood. Um, the, the basal insulins still had a peak to them. So it was, um, it was a lot different and much more difficult. Um, but I, I really was, it made me interested in medicine. Um, and I was always, I always had some interest in medicine, but that really kind of gave me this personal interest. Um, uh, but again, I, I felt very limited by my lack of math and science skills. So I kind of put all that on the back burner and I went to school for art. I went to Skidmore college and, um, I was drawn these like big, charcoal naked ladies pretty much <laughs> and my folks were you know who were paying my bills and paying my tuition were always very supportive of my art but they were like you know honey maybe you can pick something else up in addition <laughs> which was totally reasonable so I um I kind of fell into psychi psychology which I felt was eh and then we had a lecture on the brain and I was hooked I was like this is like really deeply interesting and I kind of pursued both studio art, but also this um, neuropsychology degree. And in neuropsychology, I was able to take the courses in neuroscience that I was interested in, but I was able to kind of sidestep the hard sciences. I didn't have to take orgo or calc or bio. And I, for the first time in my life, as a 20-year-old, 20, 20 I was finally doing very well academically um, in science classes. Um, and that's when I kind of had this academic confidence and realization that maybe I'm not as dumb as I really thought and maybe things are, are within reach. And so I had the epiphany kind of, uh, late in my junior, early senior year that I wanted to go to medical school. So I finished my degree. I did a post-bac pre-medical program, uh, back home in New York city. And then, uh, it took me some time. I really struggled to get into medical school. My grades were, 
um, you know, not where they needed to be. My MCAT was not where it needed to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was also making art at the same time. And I, uh, at the time was actually creating a comic book, uh, called, uh, Captain Langerhands, mm-hmm. a very nerdy comic book about a diabetic superhero that explained the pathophysiology in a metaphoric way that, um, kids could really understand it with the goal of kind of giving this comic book to kids who were recently diagnosed. Yeah. And as I was creating that, I was actively applying and, uh, Jefferson in Philadelphia, um, Dr. Brooks at the time was the admissions dean kind of said, you know, something like there's something here, you know, your numbers aren't where they need to be, but you have other aspects that I think are going to make you a really valuable medical student. And she was the only one that kind of saw past those numbers and gave me a chance. So I got in there. That was the only school I got into um, of the 30 I applied to. I think she did uh, something really, really special. And I wish some, and she did something that, was it, a, is it a female? Yes. Okay. And it's something that I wish a lot more admissions would do was look more holistically at the person and see how they can contribute as a physician rather than looking at the numbers. There's got to be a better way because I have almost an identical story with you minus the art. Um, I didn't have the grades. Uh, I failed an entire year of college, like F's, like straight D's and F's for an entire year. And I mm-hmm. had to come back and, and basically get 4.0s for an entire year as a postback to show that I was at least competent and able to make it through medical school. And same story, you know, they saw something in my application um, with my extracurriculars with, you know, like all the hours I spent coaching, all the hours that I um, spent volunteering and doing other activity activities outside of just, you know, what I was doing in the classroom. And then they also saw, you know, I had decent grades to get me there, maybe not as competitive as my classmates, but they took a chance on me and I ended up getting into a medical school. And here, I, you know, I think I'm not doing too shabby right now. And I think you're not doing too shabby either. And I think a lot of us with kind of like the the more creative skills, I guess, maybe I'd say, or the more like venturistic skills uh, are kind of, uh, you know, not given as good of a chance in the in the academic world in the academic admissions world i think medicine would do a lot better with more with with a variety of people who can actually sit down with a person you know have a genuine connection really treat the person as a whole i think there's a lot of value to that that we're not really getting in the admissions process I, I couldn't agree more with you. And, and, you know, obviously I'm a little biased, but I would argue to say that people like you and myself um, are in some ways better suited to be doctors. I think, um, you know, a GPA and an MCAT score are two very two-dimensional numbers that don't tell the whole story. And I know plenty of colleagues who were very smart and did well on their exams and did well with their GPA, but I don't think I'd really want them taking care of me or my family as a physician. Mm-hmm. And being a doctor is so much more than just knowing the material and to you know, pass board exams. And so I agree with you. And I think um, I was very, very lucky. And, um, you know, I, I, for all intents and purposes, should never have gotten into medical school. You know, traditionally, this was not something, um, if you looked at my application, would be a reason for me to get into medical school. And I am so grateful for the opportunity, but also saddened that, um, I'm the exception because I think there's a lot of people out there that didn't get in and and don't get in and I think would make phenomenal physicians. Mm -hmm. So, um, I, I really do agree with you. I do think, I do hope, and I do think to some degree there is some, 
a pendulum swing in the medical school admissions and medical education in general toward back into recognizing the humanities and the holistic qualities. Yeah, absolutely. Especially now with technology too, it's so easy to have access to information. It's so easy to, you know, look something up or to have information at your fingertips that it's more important in my opinion as a physician to be able to to be, you know, really able to connect to patients to form a good relationship and to want to care about them and care for them because a lot of things, you know, we just we're, we're looking up the information as we go and we're mm-hmm. processing the information as we go. It's like a lot of the things that we've had to memorize in medical school, we're just looking them up anyways now. And with with the future, the way technology is moving, AI, all of that, it's going to be more that type of that type of deal. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I think that the skills it takes to be that bedside physician are skills that aren't really teachable, to be honest with you. I think people are kind of have an innate sense of that empathy and that that kind of uh, communication information. And I think um, traditionally, I think people with an artistic or creative mindset tend to be a little bit better at that than others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think so, too. You said something interesting a little bit earlier and you were when you were describing your, you know, when you were a kid and you saw that doctor and you're like, that could never be me. Um, why do you why do you think you had those thoughts? I think it kind of came back to two reasons. One, there's no medicine in my family. And so um, I always looked up to my parents who were phenomenal, who are phenomenal people and phenomenal parents. And what they do professionally has always been impressive to me. But medicine was always something that was much more scientific, much more based in um, subjects that I was told I'm just not good at. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I believe that, uh, and, you know, in school and academically, the people that were kind of knew they wanted to go into medicine, knew they wanted to be doctors were people that I didn't necessarily see myself, uh, in a parallel, uh, place with. Mm-hmm. Um, I was much more interested in playing basketball and making art than I was in studying an extra hour for my SAT or for yeah. my, you know, I didn't want to take the AP science class. Um, and, uh, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't saddened by that. Like I needed, I should make it clear that like, while I felt as though medicine wasn't in my reach, I, I was never, um, depressed by that. I, I just kind of took it as fact. I took it as that's amazing that someone can do that. I'm just not one of those people and that's okay. Uh, but again, it really wasn't until I was kind of in my early twenties that I gained an academic confidence and realized that that is something that is possible. And that is something that I could dedicate my life to. Yeah. And how, so let's, let's get into the art part of it. How did you, I mean, you have clearly artistic abilities. Um, how, how has that kind of evolved since you've started medical school and medical training and now residency? Sure. Yeah, no, that's a really good question. So traditionally, like I, growing up, I would consider myself more interested in like the fine arts and more studio art. And especially in undergrad, I was making very large figurative charcoal pieces, like really big, um, and, um, you can actually kind of see one in the background oh, there. No, that's sweet. Um, for but, those of you listening, it's, how can I even describe that? But <laughs> it's, uh, it's like a self portrait of me. It looks like a very expensive, it looks like a very expensive painting from what I can tell. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. Um, I, you know, I wouldn't, uh, I would, uh, who knows? No one's offered to buy it, so we'll see. But, uh, so the, that's kind of more traditionally what I was doing. I was doing more kind of figurative stuff. Um, more realistic stuff, so on and so forth, um, and large scale charcoal pieces. 
Um, but it, it's funny. So, I, you know, I suffer from imposter syndrome as I think all of us do, but in, in, uh, art school, you know, I'm surrounded by artists. These kids are like actual artists who were so talented and so forward thinking and so creative. So I felt very much like an imposter in that setting. Cause I was like, okay, you know, I was fine, but these kids were really, really good. So I didn't feel comfortable identifying as an artist in art school. Um, and I, I, I finally got into medical school and it was really a medical school that I, I realized that. I, I had a leg up in that I was able to uh, visually kind of create these topics for myself to help me understand them, retain them, and recall them. Um, but my, you know, I would I didn't have the time or the space to sit in a in my you know studio apartment in med school and make these big charcoal pieces. So what ended up happening was very organic. I would kind of be studying, and then off in the margins of my my uh, page there, I would kind of be doodling either something kind of humorous or a little just an aside or um, a comic or something. Um, and when I would take my exams, it was those doodles that I recalled and not the blocks mm, of text. That's interesting. That I so that's yeah. when I was like, I think I'm onto something not yeah. to mention, like, as I'm sure you recall, like living in the library is very isolating and depressing. I, yeah. I was starting to get down to that place. <laughs> very. So I said, very, yeah, it's very, it could be quite, uh, strenuous on the mental. So I, I tossed my notebooks, I bought sketchbooks and I decided that, I don't want to tossed my notebooks. I bought sketchbooks. Yep. That's got to be your slogan, dude. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. That's got to be it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's, that's the tagline, man. Like that's that's the motto. And I said, like, even if my grades go down a bit at the very least, I'll be maintaining my sanity. But the opposite is what happened. I got very fortunate and my kind of silly doodles and cartoons and comics and some more rendered pieces were the reason that I did quite well in medical school. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that helped me do well on my exams that helped me do well on my boards and, um, allowed me to kind of get into the places where I'm at today, which I'm extremely fortunate, but it did something else for me too, because it initially kind of was, it was born out of necessity for didactic purposes to retain all this information. That's like a fire hydrant coming at us. Mm-hmm. And as I started rotating through clinical rotations, um, my comics and my, my doodles and my art took on a very different purpose because I was feeling so inadequate and so dumb and so, um, imposterish to, to be, you know, in that setting and being a medical student in in a, in like an OR as a third year or something, it kind of sucks. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, it's a psychology that's very strange because this hierarchy is so rigid and you find yourself singing and dancing for residents and attendings, trying to impress them in any way you can, not really knowing the culture or how you fit in or when to speak up or when to shut up. And, it felt very uncomfortable mm-hmm. and I would kind of use my art as a way to vent those feelings and I would make fun of myself basically mm-hmm. being the idiot third year student, you know, who's in the OR doesn't know what structure this is or what that is and break and scrub and all that stuff. Cause the culture is, it's hilarious when yeah. you look at it. From and that's what resonates with us because you think you're the only one feeling like that, but all of us, all you're just speaking about, we're all feeling, pretending like not knowing we're the only ones that are feeling like that. Exactly. So, and that's and, what and makes it, your art pretty cool. Well, I appreciate that. But that's the problem, right? Like in our culture, in medicine, in medical education, like we all feel like that. Yeah. Yet no one feels the power to speak up about that. Yeah. No one says, no one amongst their group of friends who's studying or who's going through their third year rotations is going to be like, oh man, like I have no idea what's going on. Like I, I think um, being who I am, I've always worn my heart on my sleeve and I've always been the one that's like, I have no idea what's happening. <laughs> and I think, I think that in a way I'm really fortunate that people can resonate with that because I thought, 
you know, you feel like you're the only one. You're yeah. absolutely right. Or like someone says a word and you just got to pretend like you know what that word is or like what they're talking about. And you're like trying to pretend like you're you're not dumb and you know what's going on. And really right, right, you're right, like, right. I got to look this up like now. <laughs> <laughs> or like you study all the medications like the whole time and then you finally have to speak them out loud and you're pronouncing them just like horribly. <laughs> it's just, yeah. And experience. I remember those feelings all the time as a medical student. Like just trying to just not look stupid mm-hmm. as yeah, much as possible. Goal. That's your goal. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough. It's tough. But, you know, now as a resident, you know, I'm I'm finishing my second year of residency and like I love that I still feel that that kind of sense of not sure I know everything. I've gotten more comfortable with that mm-hmm. um, and I, I feel better about that. I think that. that'll, that's a trait that will make you a good doctor though. Thank you. And yeah. I agree. I think it's humbling. Um, but I love having medical students. Because I see in their eyes the first couple of days that sense of like, oh, shit, I don't know what that means or like, I, I don't know what to do. And I love looking at them being like, just don't worry about it. Yeah. You know, if you don't know something, that's good because that means I have something I can teach you. You know, it's mm-hmm. like that kind of relationship. And, you know, you always remember those residents as a medical student who like really took you under their wing. And you always remember the ones that yelled at you and made you feel like crap. And, yeah. and I want to I try and be more of a positive force. In exactly, that man. I remember the difference between when I was a medical student, I remember the, the residents that were really cool and were really good mentors. And, you know, like you were able to be friends with and, you know, joke around with. And, you know, like they didn't treat you as like they didn't they didn't get sucked into the hierarchy basically. Mm -hmm. I remember those people. And then I remember the residents who treated me like they were better than me and that I was there to do scut work. And I resented those people so much. Mm -hmm. And I remember saying to myself, I'm never going to be that kind of resident. And now when I have, when I have the opportunity to work with medical students, I'm like, look, I know you got a shelf exam at the end of the month. I know you got a lot you're dealing with right now. Listen, you don't got to do anything to impress me. If you can help me, that's great. I want you to learn. And that's what I like. I try to like make sure they feel comfortable and not like I'm there judging them. That's mm-hmm. my goal when I when I have a medical student working with me. And I remember there was that variation between residents that I worked with as a student that made me keep that in mind now as a resident. And exactly. you know, we perpetuate yeah. the culture. We, it's like, if if I start treating a a medical student bad, that medical student then is going to say, when they're a resident, they're going to treat the next person bad. But if Mm -hmm. they have people that treat them good, they're going to remember that and that's going to continue the cycle. And that's how culture is built. Exactly. Totally. It sounds like you're, it sounds like you're a great, you're a great resident. I wish you were my resident as that when I was a med student. Yeah, man, (laughs) I wish I was too. (laughs) But I'm actually going to be in, uh, I'll be in uh, Boston in in a couple hours from New York City. So I might be in New York City a couple of times. So we'll definitely, yeah, definitely maybe do an in-person podcast sometime. Sure, man. That'd be fun. Yeah. So tell me now what's, what, what are your plans with the art? Like, what is your goal? What do you want to accomplish? What do you want to do in the future? Uh, it's a good question. I have a couple of endeavors that I want to do. Um, everything, unfortunately, in residency is limited by time. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I'm currently in the ICU, so like this month is like totally shot for me. But um, I have a couple of endeavors. So for one, I really do want to make a book, a didactic book um, that is like kind of like my version of like an illustrated internal medicine. And the idea is to kind of have, you know, however many subjects broken up by system, you know, GI, cars, endo, so on. Um, and have uh, the heavy hitters, the bread and butter of those systems illustrated out with like maybe a little bit of text to kind of talk about 
meant for like a third, fourth uh, year med student or, or an intern to kind of keep in their pocket and or even act as a coffee table book because I intend to making them really like nice and illustrated. Um, but kind of like you get that admission, you know, you get the sign out of the admission, you get in the elevator to go to the or you go on the stairs to, to go to the ED to pick them up and you flip through that book and it kind of is this little kind of high yield like, oh, yeah, yeah, AFib, I should make sure to order this or yeah, yeah, this is the path of fizz or like this is what I can educate my med student on or this is what I get to get the patient on. That kind of stuff. Um, and it can also be awesome, used. Man. Thank you. That's the yeah. goal. And then I want it to be used also as kind of like a study aid and then people can, I, I want it to be marked up. I want people to write in it and draw on it and so on. Yeah. So that's one goal. And then the ultimate goal, honestly, is, um, you know, I, I'm going to go to fellowship to do endocrine. Uh, I'm a type one diabetic, so I, as I mentioned, so I want to, I wanted to go into endocrine for many years to kind of help yeah. those who share my disease. Mm-hmm. But I would also like to work. So clinically I'd like to work part-time and then I want to find a role where I can harness using art as a means of teaching medicine in some sort of shape or form. So whether that be in the medical student arena, residents, um, you know, you, you know, GME or, or UME or, or in some shape or form. Um, yeah. but I have to, I'd have to find, uh, to find a place cause that doesn't really exist as, as we speak. So I'm trying to find how hey, I can I'm, 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 I'm sure it does exist somewhere and, or you can make it exist, you know, you can do your own kind of practice and Maybe not. Maybe it doesn't exist in hospitals. I'm I'm kind of looking. I'm kind of like a huge proponent of like private practice, not private practice, but like you know, um, there's this whole thing with like direct primary care and membership based per- services, value based service. So like, I'm trying to th- think of ways that we can help people without having to do without having to go through like the regular insurance based system that's really not value based at all. Mm-hmm. And really is actually not a good system at all. But I'm sure there's a, there's probably an opportunity in that space for endocrinology as well. Who knows? I hope so. Yeah, we'll see. But yeah, we'll you want to mix a little bit of your creative endeavors with your career endeavors and combine the two. Exactly. And I think that I think that book would probably help a lot of people because I remember doing like, you know, we have like sketchy micro or sketchy. I think it was called Sketchy Micro. That I still remember the images from, from that, that like mini course that I took, and I that's what helps. Me. That's how I remember some of the bugs that we deal with, mm-hmm. and like there's no way you ask me like something from a test or like something I studied in my my notes. I won't remember that, <laughs> but like I right. do remember the images. I think there's something strong about visual images, especially when you're putting your your own pen to paper. Mm-hmm. there's probably something that really just engraves that information in there. I totally agree. Totally agree. Yeah, man. Cool. Well, how do we, like, how does anyone, is is becoming an artist, like, just a skill you have to have, a talent you have to have, or can anyone develop their own artistic abilities or add their own art to medicine? Oh, so, I, you know, I think I think everyone's innately artistic. I, I give a talk um, about kind me. of this. No, no, I disagree. <laughs> I disagree. So I, I give a talk about the intersection of art and medicine. And, you know, I think a lot of people in, in medicine particularly have kind of jettisoned all of their creative outlets because they focus so, so heavily on the sciences. But I, you know, in the beginning of my talk, I asked everyone to raise their hand if they, as a kid, when they were growing up, if they colored, if they drew, if they painted, everyone, everyone raises their hand, right? It's a very innate universal thing. And then I asked them to keep their hand raised if they continue to make art today. And like, you know, three quarters of the, of the crowd puts their hands down. And, you know, I think it's a real shame. And I think it's a function of many things. I think for one, you know, people who go into medicine tend to be very type A, very perfectionist. And I think they get too hung up on the product of their art. 
And what I'm realizing now as I'm using my art for all these purposes is that it's really the process and not the product. Mm-hmm. So putting the pen to paper and like coming up with that clever idea or that cartoon or that comic or that rendered piece, it, the, the mental process you're taking and the visual spatial pathways that you're kind of uh, firing are what's going to be ingrained. And you can throw out the piece at the end, you know, mm-hmm. but there's also other things too. I mean, people sing, they dance, they act and, you know, and, and a lot of my friends I found in medicine all used to do that and they kind of gave it up because of the time commitment and so on. They didn't see the overlap or the help that it could help with or the help that it could, could do for medicine. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I think that's such an unfortunate loss. You know, I think everyone should have some form of artistic outlet and I think that benefits medicine quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. Hmm. How do you think, and this might be a little personal, but how do you think being, and this is a question I've always wanted to ask someone who may have been faced with, um, an early, uh, disease, you know, growing up and how they've handled it. How has being like a type one diabetic from a child really affected you growing up? Because it's almost, you realize, I feel like it would make you realize your mortality at a young age. And for some reason, I, I honestly believe that when you are able to look at death or face death and be comfortable with that, there's something that cha- like really gives you purpose in life. I don't know if I'm hitting the dot, I'm the nail on the head with this, but I just know that when, when you have that opportunity to see life differently or to be grateful for life, then you're able to channel your, your purpose in life in a, in a way that's, you know, that most people can't. And I don't know if I'm right or wrong with this, but I just wanted to hear your input on that. No, sure. That's an interesting theory. I mean, I can only speak to my own experiences. I can't generalize it to everyone with who's grown up with type one. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I actually never really had that mortality um, so much. The way I describe it is is the following. As a kid, um, you know, as a just turned nine, um, your life and the autonomy that you have over your decisions is next to nothing to begin with. Mm-hmm. You kind of wake up when you're told, you go to school when you're told, you do your homework, you eat this, you do that. So your choices are pretty limited. Mm-hmm. And that's just how childhood is for the most part. I mean, you have the you have the kind of um, sense of some, some level of choice for sure, but it's very truncated. And type 1 diabetes, like most chronic diseases, is a lifestyle disease. It means you have to drastically change your lifestyle. And if you're a teenager or an adult, I think that's very, very difficult to do because you've now been stripped of some of your autonomy. Your decisions now are going to be dictated by your disease process a little bit. Whereas a kid, I never had a set way of life. I was kind of, you know, I kind of was dictated my way of life as a kid. Mm -hmm. And now in addition to wearing what I'm told and eating what I'm told and going to school when I'm told, I'm taking my sugar and taking my shots and eating, you know. So it was, yeah, it was hard for sure. But I was strangely um, accepting and never really had that moment of, Oh, this will kill me. And in fact, I think as a kid, especially the physicians in the medical community, um, go out of their way to make you feel as though this is not a life and death situation. This is more of a, um, you need to take care of yourself because you don't want certain complications that may arise down the road. Yeah. But I never, I never had the, um, uh, sense of, uh, this, this, I never had a, like the near death, this is going to kill me. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, moment, but what it did was it kind of taught me, well, one, it kind of opened up this world of medicine to me in a very intimate way. And two, it taught me a sense of responsibility at a very young age that I think was helpful. 
And now... And your responsibility in a sense of how and in, in, in having to take your medications regularly or in... Yeah, I mean, all of it, right? Like mm-hmm. having to take my medications, having to take my sugar, but also you know, being in a, in a, in a, at a birthday party with your other 10 year old colleagues and recognizing that if you wanted to eat that piece of cake, you really got to be careful in terms of your blood sugar and your insulin gotcha. and maybe you should have half or not eat it. So mm-hmm. all of these kinds of thought processes that, you know, as a 10 year old, you, you just see cake, you put it in your mouth, whereas I'm kind of like stopping and thinking about it. Um, so that, that kind of responsibility, in addition to what you mentioned, how do you think of, that's translated into your life now as an adult? Yeah. So, so, you know, I was going to say the, the, the chronic disease, having a chronic disease for so long, um, will always make me a patient before I'm a doctor. And what it first did for me was open up my interest in medicine. But what it's doing for me now is it's giving me this sense of relation to my patients. So when I have my, my patient who comes in with their A1C of 10 or 11 or 12, and I can, I can talk to them, I can relate to them and I can say to them, why aren't you taking your insulin or why aren't you doing this? And why aren't you doing that? And when they see my insulin pump on my hip and they say, oh, my God, you get it. You understand. Or my favorite story is when I had a type 2 diabetic who didn't want to take a sugar at home. And I asked him, why don't you take a sugar at home? And he said, oh, doc, you don't get it. It hurts my fingers. You have no idea what it's like. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I had to smile and I pulled out my stuff. and I was like, no, I totally get what it's like. Yeah. You know, like I totally get it. And that whole dynamic changes the, the whole rapport. Yeah, and that's the whole amazing, man. That's so yeah. cool. That's super cool. Did you just like show him your pump or something or what did you do? Yeah, I pulled out my glucometer. <laughs> and I was like, I, dude, I know what it's like, man. I do yeah. it all the time. Man. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. That's awesome, man. So you have a way to relate to people and that's, I mean, well, who better? I mean, if I ever wanted to see, if I ever had to see an endocrinolo- endocrinologist, I'd want someone who gets it and who, you know, who deal, who has to deal with it and um, cause I feel like, you know, it's all about relating. If you have someone that's, you know, that doesn't get it, you maybe, you don't have as much faith in them, but I think that's a really awesome way to look at it. Thanks, man. Yeah. I mean, I think what it boils down to is like we as physicians have all these tools, right? We can, in, we can educate our patients to go home and take their insulin and measure this and do this and do this. But at the end of the, end of the day, they go home and choose to do it or not. So mm-hmm. if you can create that rapport, you can create that connection, you can create that kind of I'm here to help you and I understand what it's like and I know it sucks, but I, I do it too. Mm-hmm. I think that gives you a little bit more oomph for them to go home and do it. Yeah. For people who have um, – that know someone that's type 1 diabetic or have loved ones that are type 1 diabetics, what are like some things you probably – you wish they knew about type 1 diabetes that people just don't get? I think a lot of type 1s get frustrated when the confusion between type 1 and type 2 tends to come up. And it's understandable because, you know, the names are similar and, and the prevalence of type 2 is so much more significant. And so people know a lot more type 2s and they do type 1s and they assume it's the same path, pathophys. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's kind of first and foremost. But I also think that, um, you know, for me as a diabetic, and I think most of my diabetic colleagues would agree, going low, having a hypoglycemic episode is like really scary and like really miserable. Um, and most of us, because of that, always carry something on us with sugar or whatever, maybe. But I also like to educate the people around me um, in, in most settings because, you know, thank God, knock on wood, like I've never been in a situation where I needed someone to help me. Yeah. But I like to know that if I went low and I couldn't verbalize what I needed, that people would understand that, oh, he might be having a hypoglycemic event. We should get him some sugar. We should do this. We should do that. 
And I think that kind of allays a little bit of my anxieties. Yeah. Um, and I would imagine most type one diabetics would also like people to know what to do in those situations. Mm -hmm. So you just kind of let your coworkers know or let people like, you know, that live with you or anything like that. Just let everybody know. Mm -hmm. Exactly. It's perfect, man. Anything you want to share with our audience, anything that people might not know about you that you'd really like to get across to people? I think, I think at this point in my career, like I've been very fortunate and very grateful for where I'm at. And, you know, I, I matched into my top program and I'm, um, you know, I think from the outside of people see me right now, they, it, it seems like unattainable. I'm that astronaut, right? Like I'm that, I'm the, I'm the, the person that like I used to look at and it's like, I could never. And I, I always want to make that clear that that's just not the case. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, being a, being a type one diabetic or being an art kid or being someone that's bad, bad at math and science, like none of that should be limiting. And that, you know, just because you see someone, um, and you think that that's not something you can do, it's just not true. You can definitely do those types of things. Yeah. I remember when, like about three years ago, when everybody started getting on the social media scene and, you know, like there's only a few of us, like maybe three years ago, I remember, um, Dr. Golds, uh, was where I first saw you. And, uh, you know, that's when you were really first starting off with your art. And it's been really cool to see how you've grown like over the years. Cause like I've been following for so long. How how have you used social media to get your message out to people and how big of an impact has it had for you? So it, it's really funny because I so I went to med school, I started med school in 2013. And at that time I had no Instagram, I just had no Twitter, I just had a Facebook account. Mm -hmm. And I was of the mindset that, okay, well, Instagram's pictures and Twitter's words. Well, I have Facebook. That's both. Why would I need to manage all these different platforms? I'm just going to stick with the one I know and call it a day. Mm -hmm. And I never had any ambitions of kind of cultivating a following or anything like that. It, it just kind of happened rather organically where um, I was uh, dating someone in Philly at the time in my second year of med school. And she said, you know, you're, um, all these illustrations, you should compile them on, onto an Instagram account. And I said, uh, oh, I don't want to bother with that. She's like, oh, no, it's good because then they can all be in one place. And then when you're studying for step one, you can kind of look through them. So I thought that was smart. But just to show you how naive I was, I thought that when you hashtag an illustration like cardiology and you click it, only your cardiology stuff shows up. <laughs> and then lo and behold, I click it and there's hundreds of thousands of other cardiology things. So I, I kind of misunderstood the whole concept. So needless to say, I, I put all my stuff up there and I had a couple hundred followers, you know, my friends and family and so on. And then um, I was contacted at the end of my second year by BuzzFeed who were doing a piece on uh, folks who draw or doodle in, in grad school. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to use some of my stuff. I was oh, like, oh, of course, I'm honored. That'd be great. But then they ended up doing this really, really flattering piece just on me and kind of my journey to medical school and how I've been drawing and so on. And um, at the end of it, the bottom, they put my handle in there. And then all of a sudden... I went from a couple hundred followers of someone of, of someone who barely knows how to use Instagram to like 10,000 overnight. And it was yeah. like jarring. Um, and, you know, it, it kind of snowballed and continued to grow. And it's given me phenomenal opportunities. And I've been really flattered by it. But I've always wanted to remain true because it's at the end of the day, this is my personal Instagram. It's me. You know, yeah. I'm a diabetic. I'm an artist. I happen to be a doctor. And like, I think being blessed with having a platform kind of uh, behooves you to 
put out messages and, 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 you know, do good things. I don't like the term. I think like when people say like things like influencer and stuff, I find that kind of, um, yeah. uh, businessy and a little bit vapid. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I try really hard to not go down those roads because, mm-hmm. you know, I'm just like you, I'm just like anyone else. I'm just a kid trying to get through residency. Mm-hmm. And I like, I, I want to feel as though I'm friends with the people that follow me and not yeah. feel like I'm trying to sell them things. Yeah. Yeah. I think, and that's really, really easy to see on your page because it's, I think, um, so three years ago, the culture on social media was different because I also started my Instagram page because I had a blog in medical school and it was a blog for that I started for me and my classmates to post on, to share stuff about medical school, about life as a medical student. And I had a bunch of all my, my classmates as authors on there. Mm-hmm. So I started this Instagram page just to post our blog posts. I had no idea there was anybody on Instagram. I had no idea there was anything called an influencer. I didn't know what that was. And I was on there and all of a sudden I was using these hashtags like med student, medical school, blog post. And then all these people started following me because I was posting these things. I'm like, whoa, like people follow you from having a hashtag. Mm -hmm. And then I realized, oh, people want to hear my personal story on here. They're not interested in my blog posts. <laughs> so I started doing that instead. And then I was like, oh, people are interested when I post a selfie. That's great. I'll do that. And then I I did get sucked into what a lot of us get sucked into on social media is kind of like the vanity metrics or, um, you know, self-promotion. Sure. And... Um, Kind there's of nothing of wrong. Sort. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that either. Yeah, that's okay. There, there isn't, and I agree. And I, I've tried to always stay mindful to stay on point with my message. And my message has always been the underdog story. You know, I was a, I had, I failed the entire year of medical school, or pre medical school, pre, sorry, undergrad. Undergrad. Then, yeah. Pre medical. I struggled school. in medical school, and I actually didn't match into residency in the original match. And then I scrambled and found a spot later on in the year. And then, you know, like I've, it's been an up and down road and I've tried to use that message to inspire people. So I've just kind of had to find my own thing, but it's crazy how social media allows you to put that message out there in an authentic way. And everybody's got their unique way of putting it out there. Yeah. Your, what I really like about your message and what I think a lot of people could benefit from and seeing the way that you use social media is that you're just you're you're involving people in your process. You're not trying to build a following for the sake of building a following and spam people or, you know, put out message that's not real to you. And I would say cuz a lot of people now want to become an influencer or want to have that popular page so they can reach more people and I think that's great. It's a good idea, but the the real message that I think is important is that you just got to, you know, document your journey, be true. Don't do things for reasons that you think that are probably not the right reasons and, you know, say your truth. And I think you've done a really good job with putting that out there and you've been really successful at it because you use art and your, your art is so unique that it just, it speaks volumes. Thanks, man. I really appreciate that. I want I want to back up for a minute. Yeah, dude. I I want to congratulate you because like 
I think, unfortunately, people like to boast on social media or make their stories heard, especially in medical, the medical world. And people are not as forthcoming when they don't make it where they want to be. And I really, I really respect you because there are so many people out there that don't necessarily match or don't necessarily get in or don't necessarily whatever it may be. And it, it feels like such a failure to them, but it's not. I mean, look what you did and look how you've come and you've still achieved your dream and you're, you're just as strong for it, you know, in some ways probably stronger. And it always would bug me when I would see friends and colleagues or just people who would message me and be like, you know, I, I failed step one or this or this or the other thing. And we dedicate so much of our lives to this. We study all day and we take a test. And if that test isn't, you know, 90 plus, we, we hinge our self-worth on that test because all of our life is spent studying for that test or mm-hmm. getting into residency or getting into med school or whatever it may be. And it's so upsetting because like we're so much more than that and it doesn't tell the whole story and it doesn't mean anything related to your self-worth. Yeah. And it's, I really commend you because I think a lot of people are shy about speaking about things that didn't work out for them, Mm. especially in the medical world. Well, thank you. I appreciate that, man. I think it's actually like my superpower talking about that because it frees me from, from ever being, um, you know, uh, subject to anybody, like having that fear that anyone could find me out. Mm -hmm. Like I don't have anything to hide because it's all out there. Nobody has Mm -hmm. anything on me because it's all out there, you know? Um, I put it all out there and I feel like for me that is just freeing and it's ended up being like the counterintuitive thing where it's like, you know, it's actually been what people related to the most. It's been why people decided to um, trust me or trust what I put out there or follow me. And mm-hmm. it's uh, honestly, it's one of the best things I did sharing that information. I actually posted that you know, we're, we're sorry you did not match. I got that note. I posted it the same day everybody got theirs. And I was like, I wasn't going to. And actually one of my friends had, uh, had told me that he didn't match and he posted it on his Facebook and he doesn't have a following or anything. And, uh, I was like, wow, like I've gained so much respect for him. I was like, dude, you are the man. And he had like, you know, like just his family and like our medical school friends on there. Mm-hmm. And I was like, man, I got to do the same. I So I took a screenshot. I posted it. I said whatever I had to say on there. And I was like, let it be. Like, I'm not going to hide behind this because I know there's other people that are feeling this right now. And like how my friend just inspired me, I, w- I want to inspire other people. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's what happened. And it ended up being probably the most important thing I've ever posted. Dude, yeah, that's that's extremely powerful. And I, I really it's funny because like I relate to that, even though I, I didn't have those necessarily those experiences, I, I still feel as though I do. You, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's it's the whole imposter thing. Like none of us feel like we deserve where we're at. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think I have friends who went the other way who didn't match or who failed this or that, and they recoiled into their shell and didn't talk to anyone, didn't say anything, and and they were embarrassed and ashamed and you know, all I wanted for them to say was like, all I wanted to do for them was be like, no, 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 no. Like, it's okay. Like, this doesn't reflect anything about who you are. And like, you should, you should, you know, it's going to be okay kind of thing. But I can't, like, how, how can I say that to them when I, you know, when I matched or when I did yeah. this? And 
and it's it's tough. But I, I really commend you, and you're doing a huge, huge service, and you're changing the culture single handedly by. Oh man! Kind of, no, you you are yeah, because that's Thank important to, to to talk about that kind of stuff, you know. And the, there are so many people that are going to be phenomenal doctors that hit hiccups in the road and don't get in or don't you know pass yeah. this for that, you know. And it's good to see that you could still come out the other side. Thank you, man. That's probably one of the nicest compliments I ever got. Thanks, man. No, it's true. It's true. Um, you know, it's just, I think we fear a lot what our colleagues are going to think about us. I think that's a big part of it. You know, we think like people are not going to think we're as competent or we're not worthy. And, um, that's why a lot of people kind of hide back in their shells or kind of, you know, like just retreat and feel bad about themselves. It's cause like we're that person that didn't make it or they were that person that failed something. And if anybody finds out, people are going to think we're less than and we're not competent. They're going to, you know, write us off. Exactly. And it's really not, I found it not to be the case. And I've actually, I had a lot of support from all my friends and, you know, my family and people. And you just gotta, some people, I just, I wish people would embrace it more and not hide behind it more. Because once you accept it and embrace it, it's like you're free to move on to the next step. You know, you're it's free true. from that from that pressure and that anxiety. It's and, a re- it's a really good point. It's a really good point. You're you're because you're you're carrying that load when you don't tell someone about these things. You're carrying that load on your shoulders that no one sees. It's that invisible load. Mm-hmm. And then when you kind of wear it on your sleeve, instead you you're you're accepting it and you're owning it, and it makes you that much more of a stronger person. I think definitely does definitely. Yeah, man, dude, this has been an amazing conversation. We gotta we gotta meet up in New York City sometime. Put a mic. Yeah, man, I love that. Talk again. You're get a coffee. In, you're in I'm Michigan. In, I'm in rural Pennsylvania right now. Okay. I'm transferring to Boston and okay. or you in uh, UMass in Worcester, just outside of Boston. Nice. Um. So, uh, that'll be cool. I get to be in a bigger city, and it's a really great program. I'm really excited to be there. So yeah, I'll be uh. I'll be out somewhere new. But yeah, I'll be closer to New York City. Great. Yeah, man. Well, if you're ever in the city, you let me know. I will, for sure. Um, One last thing I'd like to ask my guests before we go. What does Mm -hmm. Beyond Medicine mean to you? When you hear that, what does it evoke? Beyond Medicine evokes for me, I think, what I've been trying to do that's becoming more and more concrete now is infuse more of creativity and visual thinking and kind of personhood into the practice and education of medicine. Love it, man. Hey, podcast, thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I hope we brought you some practical, good advice that you can apply to your life. Guys, if you could please do us the favor of sharing this, telling people about it, leaving us a comment, subscribing, all that will help us grow and will help us spread our message. Also, if you'd like to support our podcast, You can go to our website and click support and it will help us grow this podcast and continue doing what we are doing and bringing you more high quality guests like the one you just heard. Thank you guys. Peace.